You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon, reporting remotely for WFHB. This is Don Guerra. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, February 14th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Haley Moss, Florida's first openly autistic lawyer in part three of our new weekly segment, Disability as Ability. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, your daily headlines. At the Monroe County Board of Health meeting on February 10th, Director of Bloomington Utilities Vic Kelson gave the board an update on the wastewater sampling program. Kelson gave an explanation of how to access the data using the City of Bloomington Open Data Portal. And if you've never been to the, the City of Bloomington's new Open Data Portal, this is on Socrata. This replaces our old Be Clear site. And the way I get to it, because I can never remember anything and I never make bookmarks, is I just search for utilities. And one of the links inside of there is City of Bloomington SARS-CoV-2 wastewater monitoring. So I can click on this and uh, it brings up uh, information about all the sites we have. But I'm just going to go to the visualization um, and create a visualization for it. I'm not going to save it. Um, I'm going to make the date be on the x-axis. The measurement on the y-axis is gene copies per 100 milliliters, which is uh, these are not actually viruses. These are uh, indicator um, genetic material that uh, shows that there has been um, a viral, uh, th th these are shed in fecal material and it's uh, uh, the leftover, I guess the leftover bits from, from the virus. I really, I'm not a, a biochemist, so I don't know all the details of that, but it's not really the virus you're not we're not risking anybody's health by having them collect these samples or anything like that uh, i'm going to group them uh, because um, we have multiple sample sites and then i'm going to tell it uh, that i want to see the moving average of the data so you'll see here this is a graph of all the the data that we're collecting the board then discussed monroe county's mask regulation and whether or not it should be extended Board member Mark Norell said that although masks are effective, there are other factors that the board should consider in making their decision for the community. Yeah, I, I think I, you know, I, I think that uh, you know we could pretty confidently say that the science is settled about uh, masking being effective, but um, you know, at the same time, we gotta we gotta recognize that there are negative effects that um, affect everybody. Um, and, uh, so just as sort of for us to say masks are effective, therefore we need to continue wearing masks and, and, and do it by mandate. Maybe we want to talk about that and, and, um, 
if I can kind of give you sort of, you know, as Penny was talking about these factors, I'm making sort of mental notes in terms of all these sort of other factors that are going on now, besides just sort of saying masks are, um, are effective. Uh, we, you know, like number one, our vaccination rates, like, like we just said that IU Bloomington campus has a 95% vaccination rate. Monroe County, Penny just said 60-ish. It's like right at 57%. That's, that's quite high. Um, we have a, we currently have a high transmission rate if, if you look at the dashboard, as does all of all the Indiana counties. Um, but it's 100% Omicron. And Omicron, um, that variant seems to, it's, it's the prevalent strain, but it's, it's less severe in its manifestation. And a lot of people are getting Omicron that, that don't have symptoms. They don't, they, they, they have very mild illness. They're, they're good about getting tested and they find out, oh, I got COVID, right? And they do the, the right thing, but they get past it. So that's another consideration is the strain that we've got is, is maybe a consideration. Norrell added that although he believes Monroe County is almost out of the woods with the Omicron variant, he is still concerned about the high rates of hospital occupancy and that healthcare workers are worn out. During public comment, concerned Mother Angela Northcutt asked the board to reconsider the mask mandate. Because of your decision as a board of health to continue the mask mandate, our schools have no choice, and we as parents have no choice for our children. Your job as health officials is to make informed decisions. As you can tell, I'm really frustrated. At this point, it does not appear you are making decisions based on health, but your own personal beliefs, as someone stated here. And it clearly seems as though your decisions are political. The personal health decisions of my family should be my choice. Our children are being harmed my first grader has never seen his teacher smile at him in his classroom because of your decisions. You need to remove this mass mandate now and put the decisions in the, in the hands of the parents. And I've been on this call the whole time. And as Carol and Mark both stated earlier regarding the fecal matter and the waste and how to analyze this, this all of this data should be used to inform the community with data so that they can decide for themselves as to how to handle the situation. That is exactly what Carol and Mark said, and that should be no different with masks. Thank you. A community member, Mr. Miller, advocated for the individual's choice to wear masks or not. It does need to come down to it needs to be people's choice. We do have to go back to live in life. Um, as the last person said, there are kindergartners, there are first graders that have never seen their teacher's face. Flip that around. That first grader and kindergartner, that teacher's never seen their face. You don't know what's going on in that kid's head. You can't see the smile. You can't see whether or not they're happy. You can't see the passion, the drive in them. The other thing is, is all of this stuff is just creating turmoil for all of these kids. This, this actually, I agree, this really does need to end because it needs to become your choice. Your choice, your choice, what you do. If you don't, 
like those things, then people just need to just, I mean, if, if you're that scared, you need to stay home. Everybody else needs to go back to living. We've been dealing with this now for two years and it is past time for this to just go away. I'm done. Thank you. The board agreed to recommend that the county commissioners rescind the mask mandate when the governor's executive order expires on March 4th. The next board of health meeting will be held on March 3rd. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Hundreds of rights activists have asked five political prisoners held by the Islamic Republic to end their month-long hunger strike. In a letter, 650 activists said that the hunger strike has raised awareness about the conditions of the Iranian prisoners of conscience and garnered support by many human rights organizations from the inside and outside of Iran. The letter urged the prisoners to end their strikes as reports indicate their health is deteriorating. Shakila Monfared is being held in Karchak Prison, also known as Ray Women's Prison, while Hamid Hajdafar Kashani, Sina Behesti, Mohammed Abosani, and Saeed Tamjidi are in Great Tehran Penitentiary, aka Fasha Fuye. They started their hunger strike four weeks ago to protest neglect by prison authorities and the death of poet and political prisoner Bakhtash Optin, who succumbed to COVID-19 complications after he was denied timely treatment by officials at Tehran's Evin Prison. Tamjidi, one of the prisoners who was arrested during the November 2019 nationwide protests, along with his fellow hunger-striking prisoners, was beaten by guards and medical staff when they were feeling sick and taken to the prison infirmary in late January. Earlier in January, a young political prisoner, Adele Kianpour, who was on hunger strike to demand a fair trial, died in detention without receiving any medical care in the Shaiban prison in the southwestern city of Awaz in Khuzestan province. 1,500 inmates who had been evacuated from Raymond Laborde Correctional Center are now returned to the prison after a 10-day-long firefighting battle in Avayel's Parish, Louisiana. The piles of burning tires that sent black plumes of smoke into the sky have finally been extinguished. State fire investigators explained that the ongoing blaze prevented them from fully probing the cause of the fire at the Cottonport Monofill Tire Recycling Complex. The fire burned for 10 days as state and local firefighters fought to put out the burning piles of whole and chopped tires. At its worst, the blaze sent up thick black smoke visible for miles around, as far away as Marksville to the north and straight into the state prison 300 yards to the south. Firefighters had limited access to water, hampering their efforts, and fought the blaze section by section, dousing the fire and then smothering it with dirt, then pushing the remaining monofill into a pond on site. State corrections officials stated that the fire marshal's office had informed them the fire was out, the smoke levels at the prison had, quote, fallen below any threat to human health, and that groundwater under the site is not used for drinking. State regulators still have to sort out who will pay for the cleanup. 
Protesters marched through downtown Rapid City and rallied in front of the federal courthouse on Monday to demand the release of Leonard Peltier after he contracted COVID-19 while serving life in prison after being convicted of murdering two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1975. Quote, he is 77 years old with a heart condition, diabetes, aortic aneurysm. He does fall into the criteria for a COVID release, an immediate COVID release, said Carol Gokey, co-director of the International Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. She added that Peltier, quote, has more than served any time for whatever crime they came up with for him. The Rapid City protest, led and mostly attended by Native Americans, was one of six held across the country on Monday. Peltier, who has Ojibwe and Lakota heritage, was found guilty of murdering FBI agents Jack Kohler and Ronald Williams at an American Indian movement camp near Obala. Peltier, who was housed at a high-security prison in Florida, has said he participated in the shootout in self-defense, but did not kill the agents. He and his supporters have demonstrated FBI agents coerced witnesses and prosecutors withheld evidence while extraditing Peltier from Canada and trying him in North Dakota. Native American members of the South Lakota legislature, including the lone Republican member, the Oglala Sioux Tribe, the late Nelson Mandela, the National Congress of American Indians, and a former prosecutor who helped send Peltier to prison, are among those calling for Peltier's release. Peltier has exhausted his appeals and will only be released if approved under a COVID-19 home confinement program or if the president grants him clemency. For 23 days in a row, Palestinian administrative prisoners have continued their boycott of Israeli military courts in protest of Israel's widely condemned practice, administrative detention, an Israeli policy that allows prisoners to be held indefinitely without trial or charge based on, quote, secret evidence. At least four Palestinian children are currently detained under such orders. At the start of this year, 500 Palestinian administrative detainees held without trial or charge in Israeli prisons started refusing to show up for their court sessions. The boycott includes the hearings to approve or renew the administrative detention order, as well as appeal hearings and later sessions at the Supreme Court. Under the banner, our decision is freedom, no to administrative detention. Administrative prisoners say their move continues long-standing efforts, quote, to put an end to the unjust administrative detention practiced against our people by the occupation forces. Human rights groups describe Israel's use of the practice as a systemic and arbitrary form of collective punishment, noting that its extensive use constitutes a violation of international law, particularly relating to internationally recognized principles of a fair trial. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with Haley Moss, Florida's first openly autistic lawyer, in our new weekly segment, Disability as Ability. This is part three of the interview. Tonight, I'll be taking you on a ride through the world of mental and physical differences as seen through the people who embrace those differences in pursuit of a more accessible and tolerant society. It is my hope that through this program, we can cast that oh-so-important spotlight of existential dialogue on an often-forgotten community, that of the neurodiverse and physically diverse. So hop on board and let's turn disability into ability. 
Who better to start us off on our journey of transformation than Haley Moss? Diagnosed with high-functioning autism at three years old, Moss and her parents were told by doctors that she would be lucky to graduate high school. She not only went on to do so, she also graduated from the University of Florida with degrees in criminology and psychology, respectively. After graduating from the University of Miami Law School in 2019, Moss was sworn into the Florida Bar as the first openly autistic female attorney. We begin the third installment of our series when our guest is asked about conservatorships in light of the Free Britney movement surrounding Britney Spears. Our guest provides a glimpse into conservatorships and how they can be used to promote ableist agendas. We now turn to that conversation. When we talk about Free Britney, it's a very complicated system. So not only is it what conservatorship and guardianship is and isn't, but for places like for people like Britney Spears, you also have that display of sexism. You have things that are at play, especially because she is someone who is famous. She's a woman. She has a lot of money at stake. While most disabled people are more likely to be in poverty or do not have that same wealth as someone like Britney Spears does. So when we put that in perspective, it looks very different. But the guardianship system primarily impacts people with disabilities. It largely affects people with intellectual and developmental disabilities as well as elderly folks. So think of those different classes of people with disabilities. And what it does is it essentially takes away a lot of a person's rights and transfers them to another person or lets another person be in charge of a lot of aspects of that person's life. So in Florida, for instance, if you're under a guardianship, you might lose the right to vote. People are very surprised when they learn that because they don't think the right to vote is something that could easily be taken away. And a sign in the pen and giving powers of what you can do or where you can live, things like that to another person, you may also lose that right. So when we talk about guardianship, especially because it primarily does affect young adults with intellectual developmental disabilities, as well as people over the age of 65, you have a very different story being told. Britney Spears is almost an exception in that story. It doesn't usually happen to pop stars. It's less common with people who likely have psychiatric and mental health disabilities. So that's kind of a little bit, but that's the scary thing with disabilities. You almost have to be as perfect and close to normal as possible because there is such a double standard. So if a, reg- if a neurotypical young person was making the same mistakes as Britney Spears did in that situation, they probably would not have been met with that same hostility or threat of guardianship. They might have just been chalked off to having a bad day, maybe going through a tough time or something of that nature. I think about this a lot when we talk about services. And I saw this actually on a TV interview of someone mentioning like how sometimes kids would poke at dead skin and stuff. I saw this on a TV interview the other day. It was with an autistic actor and he brought this up like that's just something that kids would do like in school. But when he did it, it was seen as that he was doing self-injurious behavior when really kids were just, like, fascinated by this thing. But when he did it, he was held to a very different standard as the typical kids were. So there really is that double standard that comes into play when it comes to independence more broadly, let alone things like guardianship and conservatorship for people with disabilities. I would ask as well, you know, we have these different interventions per se, and I know neurodiversity as well talks a lot about You know, there's a difference between, obviously, we have the people who believe in 
curing autism. And then there's the belief in people who believe in slight interventions. Where do you think uh, the line is as, a, as an advocate in the field? Where, where does that line intersect? Where does it cross the line from being wanting to cure autism to making autism work for a person rather than against them per se? That's a great question. For me, my answer is how do we improve quality of life? And I think it's a very broad thing to answer. So when I look at quality of life, that's like, I might not want to care for autism, but I would love something that, for instance, helps a lot of autistics alleviate anxiety. Or if a lot of us have sleep issues, as I know is very common in the community, that would be great. It would be great to also be my autistic, wonderful self and also be able to sleep at night, for instance. So I say that kind of as a way that most people can kind of get behind of, yeah, some of these things that are genuinely damaging or stressful or actually harmful to the person or the people around them, extinguishing that behavior or replacing that behavior or being able to alleviate the burdens of certain conditions that are just difficult would be super helpful. So I know that kind of is a very difficult line to enforce, and I think that's by nature. So I don't think a cure would help, I think a cure might cause additional problems, not only in the community, but our society. But I do think that alleviating certain things that are known quality of life issues can be extremely helpful. Autistic people deserve the same rights, the same love, respect, and anything as any other human being. So I look at it as how do we just make sure that we're able to have those same things and the support to be able to do so. So a lot of that also comes down to how you think that research dollars should be spent and how research should be funded, which I am not the best person to comment on, but I would love to see more of these efforts being spearheaded by autistic researchers, autistic adults, and also having less barriers to access to even get to research or to participate in research. Interestingly, I know that you spoke a bit as well in your book about therapy from a horse, hippotherapy. I found that to be extremely uh, interesting and uh, in a way revolutionary because uh, I had always thought as well interventions often meant you know occupational therapy and whatnot. What was uh, what was the purpose of the of that therapy and what how did that help you out specifically? Genuinely loved being around horses, and it actually started because my parents took me to a program in, down here in Florida that. It has a different name now, but at the time it was called Horses for the Handicap. It was essentially teaching different like balance skills and connection and allowing people with disabilities access to horseback riding. It was extremely cool, and I really loved it. And what it, what it helped with is I, I had that sense of confidence. I was athletic. I was also able to work on things like balance. It was really wonderful, and I know those organizations still exist that assist people with disabilities through horseback riding. And it was something that really definitely made a difference for me as a young person. When it comes to interventions, like connecting with people on something that they care about, feel passionate about, and it's not going to be intimidating and scary. I think that's huge. I learned a lot from when I was riding horses and things like occupational therapy. Like, yes. So it's really about catering, you would say, to the person's interests. I think kids know when something's up. I, I just feel like I had fun all the time. Like, I always had adults who wanted to hang out with me and play with me. I never thought anything of it because I'm an only child. I was used to being around adults all the time anyway. As we start to close up the interview, I guess the most important thing I could ask, we have probably a lot of listeners as well who are really looking for that voice 
to inspire them. So I was wondering if you could leave us with some advice you could offer to those on the spectrum. So, for example, we're on the spectrum, uh, minorities on the spectrum who really are aspiring to embrace their differences, to become lawyers or pursue post-secondary education. What advice can you offer uh, to those listeners out there who are a little nervous about their difference but really want to make it work for them? I just want people to know that you're not a – I always feel very – serious about this, especially with young people, is that you're not a failed version of normal. And whatever it is that you do bring to this world, whatever talents, gifts, or anything in between, or things that you're interested in, go for it. And it's up to us to encourage this. And I put that on listeners no matter who you are. So we have to encourage this excellence, this passion, and continue to grow it. I think that's really, really important. I just want people to be happy, successful, and well-adjusted. And when I say that, it means a lot of different things to different people. So when we think about what makes us happy, It might look very different between what makes you happy and what makes me happy. Your idea of success might look very different than mine. And what being well-adjusted means might look different. Maybe for some folks, that's handling and managing and acknowledging trauma. Maybe that's settling down somewhere and being independent. All these things mean different things to different people. And I think that's important as we do continue to do what's best in the interest in each individual. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. I'm Abe Shapiro, and don't forget to live and learn. That was Abe Shapiro speaking with Haley Moss, Florida's first openly autistic lawyer, in the third installment of our weekly series, Disability as Ability. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Abe Shapiro. KiteLine is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young for WFHB. I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast, as well as all of our other news and public affairs programming at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason. Coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. 
Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 